Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special returning guest is Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence, a former Dallas Fed advisor and author of the book Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Danielle is active on all quality financial media outlets, and we're absolutely delighted to have her back on the show. Danielle has very kindly given listeners to the State of the Markets podcast a 25% discount to her Quill Intelligence service. Look in the show notes for the code. Danielle DiMartino Booth, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thank, thank you for having me back. Yes. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. We had such a good time on episode 80, which was on the 22nd of December, where we learned all about your background and how you got into the financial markets and the decisions. December 2019, before the world changed, Paul. Yes, indeed. And we, we were talking about the level of debt and how worried we all three of us were. Um, what about now? Well, uh, we we found out that it, it was indeed a ticking time bomb. And, uh, and and that the more importantly, we found out that the Fed was fully prepared and had prepackaged a plan of action in the event of of any black swan coming across its path. And in fact, that the Federal Reserve needed because of how gummed up overnight lending was in late 2019, that the Fed actually needed an excuse to launch full-blown quantitative easing to start reflooding the system with reserves, and it certainly found that excuse with uh, with the March 23rd. We, we've passed the one-year anniversary of the of the massive bailout program that the Fed launched, that saved the corporate bond market that was definitely in the process of blowing up, and indeed reliquidated a financial system that was clearly uh, on its knees without. Uh, certain days that the Fed came in on a single day and purchased $100 billion of security. In the beginning, that's what people people don't realize, is that how very aggressive the Fed was when it initially launched uh, the post-COVID bailout. What do you think the end game is here? Are we going to see inflation, deflation, disinflation, stagflation, or or, or some... some Hyperinflation. Hyperinflation. Yeah, it's it's this is such a difficult uh, this this is the singular debate. Uh, clearly, when you have situations like what we've just seen in the Suez Canal and have an almost week long drama that backs up four hundred and fifty ships uh, that are tied to twelve percent of global trade, and you've already got a supply chain disruption that this is occurring, into you say to yourself, well, the supply chain disruption is going to remain disrupted for longer than any of us had anticipated. And the reason I bring that up is because you are starting to see China become more aggressive with keeping the yuan on the devalued side. Uh, They certainly sent a message to the new Biden administration by allowing the yuan to appreciate as much as they did. It was it was China's way of saying this is fair warning. We have the the greenback in our sights, and if we want to uh, supersede the size of the U.S. Uh, economy, we have the tool to get there. So that was that was an interesting exercise since we've last visited. But right now we're going the opposite direction. China is fully open for business. Uh, Chinese manufacturers lost market share 
uh, to, uh, to costlier U.S. counterparts after the pandemic hit and um, American manufacturers, American factory uh, managers were forced into uh, to find other sources of supplies or as we've seen in the case of the automobile industry, and this is a global phenomena, actually shut down production lines because they can't get their hands on the requisite number of semiconductors that, again, we've heard will further delay, be further delayed because of what happened in the Suez Canal. So while you have China preparing itself to come out and regain lost market share, and I'll translate that, that means cut costs to do so. They'll be as competitive as they need to be. Uh, you still have a separate idiosyncratic situation that is going to gum up supply chains for a little bit longer and obviously keep the shipping and freight costs high. That's been very problematic for producers. The question becomes one of whether or not this $1.9 trillion stimulus 3.0 in the United States is going to be sufficiently long-lived And I think that that's what people are not focused on quite enough, sufficiently long-lived to create the backdrop for a substantial rise in consumer prices and potentially in wage inflation. And those are two much bigger ifs once we get through base effects, which we'll be carrying into, we'll we'll begin to see it this week in, in Europe, but we'll begin to see base effects from March, April, and May of 2020 in the next few months of inflation prints worldwide for that matter. But the question comes down to what it has been for multiple generations, and that is pricing power. Do you think we've seen the the um, high watermark for globalism or globalization? I think that uh, I think that that s- smaller headlines should get bigger attention. The, the move on the part of a large Canadian railroad to buy Kansas City, which will give it a full North American network. So from, from Chinese, excuse me, from, from, from Canadian factories on through the United States, all the way into Mexico. I, I, uh, when you look at foreign direct investment into Vietnam, it looks like globalization has not been arrested, but that it might become more strategic and more political going forward, such that we make sure whether you're allied with China or whether you're allied with the United States, uh, that is going to depend in many ways on where your economic ties are the tightest and the closest. And in some countries like Germany, it might end up being China. I guess the reason for the question is that with what seems like half the world economy thrown into the deep freeze via lockdown, the whatever comes, assuming uh, a, a lifting of restrictions, is going to be completely unlike anything that any of us have ever lived through before. Uh, that is correct, and I uh, it, it's extremely disheartening to see the um, uh, the, the lack of, of ability to go back, even forensically, and and for the World Health Organization to even attempt to investigate the origins of this virus that continues to ravage much of the world, a, a lot of attention is fading because the UK, the United States, obviously Israel is the the prime example, but I, I think attention is fading away from the pandemic too quickly and prematurely because it's still definitely raging in certain areas of the world. And this will definitely mark a watershed moment. 
in, in terms of how individual countries perceive themselves vis-a-vis -vis other nations. It's, um, it, it's very much a, a more tempestuous situation than it once was if Australia itself is willing to put at risk its deep economic ties with China to make a point, and I fully back the Australians, um, it does give you evidence that this globalization uh, does have its limits. If, if entire economies and economies uh, and, and econ economic participants begin to be so so deeply damaged, and we are seeing signs of economic scarring. I'll give you but one kind of off the wall, very sad anecdote. Here in the United States, uh, the, the, the museum, the Children's Museum of Portland has just been closed. To, this year would have been its 75 year anniversary. Uh, children's Museum revenues are down 70% year over year. And it looks like this is going to be the, the beginning of a huge hit to culture, to the way of life that we knew it before COVID, uh, an unintended casualty, if you will. And this is going to be a global phenomenon. And when you sit back and examine the origins, people's, uh, people's anger at China, I, I don't see any reason to dissipate mm. in, in the coming years. And I'm not sure if that's the question you're asking or not, but that's the answer you got. Sure. <laughs> With, regard to long-end yields, they've been rising, uh, probably not enough, well, not enough to spook the stock market, but indeed it's raised a few eyebrows. Is that a trend that you think will continue? And is there a chance that um, it may derail the Fed's view of keeping rates low? Well, certainly not if you listen to the Fed. Yeah. And, uh, and because they know that at least even if there's rampant fraud inside of the weekly jobless claims figures, and we know that there is quite a bit of fraud and double counting, but even so, if you want to take a big haircut off of 18 million Americans collecting unemployment benefits, it's still a huge number. And the amount of money that is being paid by the government to not work, and I don't say that lightly, if you look at a single mother of two children uh, I, I did the math when you consider all of the subsidies that she's getting in addition to the additional child care tax credits, having her rent covered, having her health insurance covered, having her utility bills covered, uh, it, it amounts to an annualized rate of uh, north of $60,000. So you're, you're going to have a Federal Reserve that's, sadly, because Janet Yellen is at the helm of Treasury, going to remain mystified that these stimulus packages fail to succeed, uh, but there's no way they could succeed if anybody in their right mind sat down and did the math and realized that, that they're making a multiple of what they made prior to the pandemic. It's going to be very difficult to get these people off the sidelines. If you look at job openings nationwide in the United States, they're down 2%. If you look at job openings for American workers with the least amount of education, so the least skilled workers, they're up 30% year over year. And those are positions that are going to remain unfilled because they simply don't pay enough to justify pulling somebody who's making so much off of unprecedented. This is unprecedented in the history of the United States, uh, the level of stimulus money that is being put out there. But the backfire is going to be stubbornly high unemployment. That's going to keep the Fed and, and Jerome Powell, whose term does not end until the end of January, 
2022, that's going to keep him patient and on the sidelines using those two words, transitory and transient. Do these, do these figures not, not compare to the stimulus figures, not compare to what was shoveled at the economy under the New Deal under Roosevelt, under FDR? Well, under FDR, of course, there was a massive public-private partnership. We were a different country back then, and we built things. We created jobs. Um, there were, of course, soup lines, but there was, there was terrible poverty, but there was work that was being created. And the groundwork that was laid in the New Deal that led into Eisenhower's building out the highway system in the United States led to the most productive era in U.S. history. But again, we were putting people physically, putting people to work through those programs. And it, I actually did a study recently on consumer confidence during the Great Depression, during 1936, 1937, as we were beginning to come out of it. And many people were, this is when the unemployment rate was 17% 1936. Many Americans were still heartened and confident going forward because they had such deep faith in one man, FDR, mm. and in his determination, not just to give people money, but to give people back their dignity and pride uh, with a hard day's work that ended up proving to be very, very powerful for the country. What What would you say to the, I suppose, Murray Rothbardian um, thesis that it wasn't actually the New Deal. The New Deal, if anything, perpetuated the Depression, and it was the Second World War that dragged the U.S. out. Well, it was, it, it was, and it is a combination. Uh, but if, if you look back at the New Deal and the millions of men, primarily, obviously, mm. who were employed, that was not any kind of a chimera. I understand that there was still an overabundance of slack in the workforce, hence the 17% unemployment rate. But Americans were able to see America grow. And it was something that was in front of their faces, as opposed to, again, being paid not to pay. Your, your, your quality of life doesn't improve if you're not working. Um, well, I, I, I surely can't speak for many, many people. But there's there's no pride in being paid to not work is what I'm mm. saying. Mm. And in the case of, of World War II, we came out of it with with the Lincoln Tunnel, with with the Hoover Dam, with things mm. that are still with us today that are very tangible, mm. uh, a methodology, if you will, to bring the United States into the next era of growth, much the same as what China has done with a lot of its stimulus spending, building out at current, they're working on repairing or modernizing 30 airports in China with public funding. So it's it's a different approach and we're not even flirting with doing anything of that nature because the next three to $4 trillion being contemplated in Congress, very small amount of it's going to actually go towards infrastructure and, act, and job creation. I don't know if you've seen it or, or read it. There's a book by Charles Murray called Coming Apart which um, is very, very good on exactly what you've just said, which is the way that sort of sneaking, creeping welfareism just robs people of, um, of the, 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 the spirit to get up in the morning. And, and you know, and that is, and I, I've, not actually, I've not actually read the book, but, uh, but you ask yourself, the, the offspring of this generation that's being paid not to work, where they're going to get the example to carry on into their adult lives. Mm. 
to, to I mean, th this is coming from a very personal level. I, I was babysitting when I was 12. I lied on my first job application when I was 15, said that I was 16 to get my first minimum wage paying job. It, it taught me why you don't work for minimum wage. So that, that, that was an important lesson. It's like, this is a, this is a starter career. You're not going to make pizza forever. Move on, Danielle. Uh, and then I worked my way through university all the way up until I've, I've never stopped working, but I've been working since I was 12, long story short. And, and I don't regret a day of it because it has, it, it has always exemplified to me the value of a dollar. And that's not something that you can convey with a check. It's something that you convey with actions taken on, on, on your own part. Do you think the Fed's ultimately, ultimately responsible for the current craze in NFTs because the value of money is just being completely debased? So, uh, you know, I, I do. Uh, and the funny thing is, because the dollar is the reserve currency, you don't, it's not as visible the debasement, but you know the debasement is going on. And Fed policy clearly trickles into the top 10% of earners and makes the wealthy wealthier, but it also feeds the speculative masses. I mean, there was a very funny Saturday Night Live skit this past weekend with with rap, you know, with rappers in an economics class for a, a fictional Janet Yellen trying to explain you know, what one of these digitized pieces of art is. And it was hysterical, but it was also <laughs> at the same time, very, very telling. Google it, it's hysterical, but it, it's also very telling about the level of speculation and also some of the huge movements we've seen in certain individual stocks and what have you, how leveraged big players are as opposed to just the, the, the little retail guys playing in call options. So the, the leverage is spread across the system. And we're finding that out as volatility becomes more of a mainstay and spreads beyond the volatility in the stock market to volatility in credit. My uh, colleagues inform me that someone has, has successfully converted one of their farts into an NFT. Um, okay. I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I believe them or not, but these days I think I could believe anything. No, no, I, I believe, I believe that. <laughs> it, it can be audio, so that is, yeah, that is possible. Do you? Uh, uh, one thing that I found fascinating: the, there's a there's a there's a family office slash hedge fund that's in the process of blowing itself up, called Archegos or possibly Arch Egos. Um, do you get a, a strange sense of deja vu about that, given the history of long term capital and then what happened in two thousand seven, two thousand and eight? Well, it's more, for me, it's more the aggregate, the, the Melvin, the Credit Suisse, the Greensill. It's more that these small bombs continue to go off in the, the background. What, 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 what I'm trying to give his name now, the, the, what J.K. Galbraith called the bezel is starting to, starting to float up to the surface. Yes, that's a lovely way of putting it. It's the aggregate of these little bombs that are going off one after another that are telling so the, for the people who say, well, the Fed's got my back, I can just buy the market. If it goes down, they're going to step in. What's to worry? Everybody's been, you know, saying the, the sky's going to fall in and it hasn't. You know, what, what's different now? Well, I think that what's different now is the, the scale and how stretched things are. And how stretched things are has absolutely zero to do with 
when a market is going to start to cave. But at this point, we know everything that the Fed has done and can do. And we know that the Democrats, that the Democratic Party has come out and said that they will push through this next three or four trillion dollars using uh, reconciliation, meaning only 50 members of the Senate have to vote to push the, the, legis uh, the, the, the legislation through. So you can foresee that the Fed has at least another couple of trillion dollars of debt to effectively uh, monetize. And, but, but again, markets are forward looking and they see what's to come. So you have to ask yourself if confidence is going to begin to be shaken and certainly not just in, in the Fed, but in the European Central Bank at the Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan recently raised its first white flag ever and said, you know, maybe pushing on a string for multiple decades is not working. <clears throat> so it, it remains to be seen what the post Jay Powell era will look like. He has aged quite a bit of time in the past three years. And I, I, I would find it to be in incredible if he decided to stay in his position. But there is a next generation of central banking to be contemplated. And it's moving along at a much faster pace than any of us could have envisioned uh, spurred by the Chinese and how aggressively they're pursuing their own central banking digital currency. And that really is kind of what we call the end game, uh, or at least how I think of as the end game being, because once United States currency uh, is digitized, the, the need to rely so much on the dollar itself begins to vanish. And the ability to create lasting inflation becomes manifest. If, if you ever cross that Rubicon, and Janet Yellen is the right one to do it, she's a UC Berkeley educated labor economist and really does want to get money directly to the people. You're speaking of a kind of a slippery slope to de facto welfare state. Uh, but if you really want to create inflation, then you get money directly to the people. But you also yeah. impose negative interest rates on people. And take that, take that money away if they don't behave themselves according to Chinese-style social credit scores. And Ken Rogoff, take your pick. But yes, so um, so those are possibilities going forward. If there's enough frustration in the labor force participation rate remaining where it is, every time we've had a boom and a bust, whether it was 99, 2000, or the great financial crisis, 2007, 2009, Every time we've had one of these major crises come through the U.S. economy, we've had we've taken a step down in the labor force participation rate that's never been addressed. It, it, it improves throughout these very long cycles, but it never attains its prior level. And so you you end up with this unskilled labor's mismatch, a lot of brick and mortar, a lot of hotel employees, a lot of because you're already hearing from employers here we can't get the skilled workers we need. So we're already at that stage, even though there are millions and millions and millions of Americans without work. And so eventually you, you build up this, this plaque in the arteries, you build up this sclerosis in the labor market that determined people such as Janet Yellen might be so frustrated, they say, you know what, we're gonna take care of this once and for all. We're gonna set up 
the, the Fed's liabilities are legal tender and we're going to set up accounts directly at the Fed. I mean, Jamie Dimon would lose his mind, but maybe by then he, he's, he's retired. You mentioned central bank digital currency and, and on Paul's behalf, I feel honor bound to ask what, what your view is on uh, cryptocurrency. Well, I think cryptocurrency is a lovely uh, way to get all the kinks out of the system for for federal authorities. And so 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 private sector cryptocurrency, it doesn't really feature. This is something that's going to be a sovereign development, you think? I, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I've never personally met Xi Jinping, but I, I can't I can't envision him saying, well, rather than the long term plan of the yuan overtaking the dollar as reserve currency status, I'll just step aside and let Bitcoin take over instead. We'll yeah. just we'll just shake on it and it'll be nice and friendly. I, I, Seems whatever. unlikely, doesn't it? It just it seemed it, it would seem to be out of character for somebody who is into long term planning. So, Bitcoin as a say as an investment though, or as something that you would, um, you know, you you would invest in as opposed to say real estate or the stock market is is it something you think is a valid uh, area to to look at, or do you think it's something that ultimately? I know this is such a difficult question, and everybody gets asked it, and there's so many different views about whether it's going to go to 200,000 or, or all the way to zero. Um, what, what's, your, what's your view of it as an investment? Well, my view of it as an investment is uh, clearly something that has gained legitimacy. And given its volatility, if you were just to look at it as a blind asset class, uh, I would say that it's something that should be in the portfolios of individuals who can stomach massive volatility. So that, that, to be fair, is a change in view, because I remember when we spoke about it last, you weren't quite as keen on it then. But I think there, there has been quite a few people who've, who were a little bit wary of it, and that was myself included, um, who've said, well, actually, look, this is staying the course. But the only thing that worries, well, not the only thing, but one of the major things that worries me about cryptocurrencies is they are existing in a world where interest rates are effectively zero or negative and how does one if we were to look forward to a point in time maybe 50 years from now i say with my tongue in my cheek um when interest rates actually go up how well will they fare when you're getting 10 percent interest on your bank account would you really be wanting to hold a cryptocurrency and, and part of the attraction of a cryptocurrency isn't just its value it's the the ability to make payments and and it's um the fact that it's decentralized but interest rates being at zero is is no competition to to bitcoin so if you if you give give me an email address i'll send you uh the the chart that we published a week ago today that shows the advent of negative rating, uh, negative yielding sovereign debt, and the advent of of Bitcoin, and they literally have they they move in lockstep. Right, right, absolutely. And one did not exist prior to the other, and when one has pulled back, the other has followed with an eighteen month lag. But I mean, we actually sat and studied this very, very closely, Brilliant. and the two exist because of one another. Right, right. So that that's that's exactly the point. And if you look at say, um, I mean, if you look at say the, the European Union and the euro, it was all put together at the time when all economies were converging and everyone was happy, and you know there there was no international tensions and and 
that was that was the way of it. Now today's world, everything's opposite. Everyone's looking for devolution of power. We got uh, Brexit. We've everyone wants to be like Scotland wants to to uh, break apart from the UK and 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 and. So this this is a very different world, and as we know, when you're stress testing any form of assets, it's got to be in all forms of market arenas. So it's got to be high interest rates, low interest rates, and all other areas of um, of economic conditions. And since the beginning of Bitcoin, you know, 2010 was really the start, and it it, it really took off around 20. 15 i guess and 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 uh, and we know where it is now um we we haven't had a single point where we've had interest rates oh i've seen i've, I've got your chart there that's fantastic what I'll i do is- um this is proof don't ever tell my children i i just figured out how to do something on a computer without asking them so just <laughs> don't tell them that's excellent that's excellent yeah so so that that makes the, the point beautifully and i'll i'll share that with our listeners um, I'll, I'll, I'll get a way to put, well, we can put it on YouTube, but we'll definitely put it on the, um, the link to the podcast so you can see it's a fantastic chart. It's a great bit of work. So, so at some point, and this is, I guess this is the big question, when will interest rates go up? And the, the poor savers who are trying to, um, you know, not get themselves into debt, do the right thing and be prudent and, and not take on debt and buy by overinflated assets, I mean, they're the ones that are being punished. Exactly. And it, yeah, I mean, when you think about the turn of the century and getting 5% on a five-year CD, at least you were sleeping at night if you were 80 years old, as opposed to trying to figure out what's in your junk bond ETF. Um, but, but, but to your point, what gets us there is, is the Fed using um, is fed liabilities becoming legal tender mm. it is it, it is not saying we have reserve currency status and therefore we can do anything with it we want it's showing that we have reserve currency status and saying we are going to direct direct that's a verb the fed to give money to people and then you just you move out of the way you go from whether you're discussing stagflation because you've got rising input costs that are squeezing margins while you have major uh, slack left in the labor market. So you, well, will it be stagflation? Will it be inflation? Will it be an inflation scare? You just take the whole discussion off the table and you just flip the switch to hyperinflation and you call it a day. So what would be your view of, uh, I know, this, again, this is a really tricky question, but what what would be your view of the outlook of, real estate in America because if you have got inflation you'd be looking obviously to buy but if interest rates start to go up and mortgage rates start to go up that would push it the other way so it's a very difficult call but do you have a strong view on it well you know, uh, the thing is uh, in, in the interim term when interest rates rise real estate actually if you look back at 100 years of history real estate is very pro cyclical and given the sheer amount of leverage behind the commercial real estate market, the 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 amount of, of of commercial real estate and construction loans and land loans on small and medium-sized banks, to say nothing of whatever U.S. home prices are doing today, I guess they're up twenty percent and rising very fast. And you hear of these bidding wars, and you you scratch your head and you say that's impossible. That four hundred offers came in on one home. It's it, it just the the stories you hear. 
So extremely interest rate sensitive, especially in the beginning, you take the froth out of the market and then you look for opportunities to buy. But in the beginning, you cannot disregard, as we sit here talking about a, a, you know, a, a, a tiger cub blowing itself up with multi-billion dollar block trades because it was leveraged five to one. In any situation and in any asset class, even if it's real estate, which should be a hard asset in which you can hide in any over leveraged asset class, you have to let the leverage come out before you find the buying opportunity. So tell us a bit about Quill Intelligence and the, you obviously write research that's for uh, professional investors, but is it something, that, and, and corporations, but is it something that um, less sophisticated investors can be uh, appraised of? Is it something that they, they would understand? Well, you're looking at, you're looking at our quote unquote retail product right here. This, this is our daily feather. So this is $500 a year, $50 a month if you prefer. And this is very much uh, something that can be consumed and is designed to be consumed on a daily basis that, that just gives you a snapshot of what people are talking about, whether it be you know, German manufacturing or what's happening with Bitcoin. It's something that is designed for anybody who knows anything about economics and finance and, or just wants to become more financially literate. So it, you simplify and you just pick out what's important and, and, uh, and focus in on that. I'll, I'll send you the full feather that this went with and it, it, it will give you an idea. Yes. And we definitely cut out the noise. We're not selling anything. So we're, we, we give new meaning to independent. And that's the point, right? It's that so much of the research that can be consumed, especially by smaller investors, has got some kind of an agenda behind it. And that's not who we are at all. We're the opposite. Absolutely. I mean, you're not afraid to say what you think as well, obviously, because you've been... No, you've no, been... <laughs> it's, it's, it's scathing, scathing, scathing. I mean, there's, there, there's good reason I've created a whole hashtag on Twitter, hashtag J-A-N-D-J, to, re to reference Janet and Jay. Oh, wow. Okay, brilliant. Brilliant stuff. Thank you for that link. Um, Tim, are you, are you still there? Yeah, no, I'm still here. I'm still here. I was just trying gonna, to pick was, himself up off the floor. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to see the. I'm trying to see the good news, and I'm slightly struggling. I must just share um, a tweet from. Uh, you'll probably know a gentleman by the name of Morgan Housel. Just to interject an apology about Tim's audio. We always record with a backup, but unfortunately, the backup was exactly the same. So uh, I'm sorry, we can't do anything about it. But hopefully, you can understand what Tim's saying who's an uh, investment writer, very, um, very engaging writer. And he, he tweeted this in back in August, which is, teach your kids about compounding. Put your money in a savings account and watch it double every 19,876 years. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, brilliant That's stuff. sobering. Uh, I, think, I think the, the, the game has moved on since, since that was, was written because, as, as we've said, the long end has already started to see fairly sizable yield appreciation. My, my question would be, what if the Fed decided to throw a bull market in interest rates and nobody turned up? You're now, saying is there a possibility of an existential crisis, which is that the Fed attempts to support market, whether that market be um sovereign sovereign yields or whether that's the stock market and everyone just says now nah, we'll do something else now well it really is going to depend on on the moment right even if the fed wants to control interest rates they're controlling interest rates from a very low absolute level mm. 
And that's different than when they came riding to the rescue in 2000 or 1998 with long-term capital management, as we mentioned earlier, or 2000, 2001, or 2007. Civil slash from zero to zero. Exactly. And the current leader of the Federal Reserve is adamantly opposed to negative interest rates. And you really do have to bring in somebody who's going to be able to say no to the banking lobbies. And that's why there is chatter about Lael Brainerd being teamed up with Janet Yellen. Because you you could have two people who were absolutely determined to blow up the banks. And that's really what you're talking about, whether you're looking at the Japanese or the European stock index, since negative interest rates have been imposed. So at, you know, at some point, the... You're, you're, I mean, the, the Fed could help out holders of the long bond. That'd be great. Uh, but, but, but your marginal benefit from these absolute low levels, what, what markets do more than anything else is breathe a sigh of relief that, that, that there's nothing out of control occurring in terms of upside in yields. And that's certainly what we've seen. What we've seen thus far has been it's happened in bursts. It's, it's happened in 10, 20 basis point bursts at the long end of the yield curve, but it's very much been controlled. Without going into the specifics, um, could, could you talk about what you're doing with your own money? Just about, uh, at a very general asset class level. Well, at a very general asset class level, uh, uh, I have been a seed investor in, in, in individual private companies. So true, true, true private equity uh, for years now. And I own a very beaten, battered uh, gold position. I'm, I'm positioned to take advantage of volatility, and I own quite a few municipal bonds. Mm. Very that's a, that's, a, that's a kind of tax break that's available in the States that we don't really have an equivalent for over here. And it, it helps you feel less badly about making nothing on cash mm. because you do end up making something after tax. In our last interview, I asked you whether you thought the Fed should be disbanded, and you said no. Do you still have that same view? I think if the Fed crosses the line and does as I describe and basically turns this country into a de facto socialist regime, that would, that would upset me enough to say that the Fed should be disbanded. Right. So it would be fair to say the direction of travel as things stand is not necessarily to your pleasure. The way things are headed at the Fed and the, the fact that, um, that Powell chose to take the opportunity of allowing a lot of the weakest players to be expunged from the system, and this was a huge opportunity. He could have come in with quantitative easing alone and put a floor under, underneath the markets and provided the liquidity that was needed. The fact that he felt compelled to bail out the corporate bond market and such that prior to the pandemic, we had 14% of American companies that were, that were considered to be zombies. Now we have 20%. Uh, so he's just made a bad situation worse for the next generation of individuals entering the workforce because they're going to have that long-term drag on productivity acting as an anvil. So he, it didn't have to be done. He did not have to bail out the fat cats. One thing we haven't discussed is, uh, at least today, is the role of ETFs, exchange-traded funds, and let's call it, well, passive investing. Do you have any concerns about the fact that some of these players are now just ginormous and are too big to 
too big to let's say wind down in a lordly manner. No uh, names. No names. BlackRock. No. <laughs> Who does the Fed's bidding by contract? Uh, no, I. Um, people in the world of ETFs, they, they they kind of walk around like peacocks and say, "Look, the structure's been tested and it's proven to be resilient." And, you know, my stock answer is define test, because mm. if a test involves you know, a multi-trillion dollar bailout by the Fed, well, sure, I could pass that test too, easily. But in terms of a true test being passed, it's never happened. So we don't know what, for example, as I just mentioned, bond-backed ETFs would have done now that they themselves are a trillion dollar asset class. And we, we, we have no idea what the unwind would look would look like with some of these larger, huge stock ETFs, because again, they've never been tested. So if, if you were given control of the Fed tomorrow, what would be the first thing you'd do? I'd probably quit. Because <laughs> I, well, I mean, I mean, first I would, I would, I would say that the, the, the Fed's balance sheet is, is no longer a weapon of mass destruction to widen the inequality gap. So I, I, I think that quantitative easing has done appreciably more harm to the long-term prospects for the U.S. economy than, than the good that it's done. Before so, you quit, could you take out Paul Krugman? Could you <laughs> go, go postal in a really dramatic way? <laughs> you know, what's funny about Paul Krugman, though, is um, I actually, he had a few words of wisdom recently. And well, that stopped, I, he, stopped clock is right twice a day. <laughs> uh, but he did actually mention that the inflation scare of 2011 to 2010, 2011, that the, the, the consumer price index, the core consumer price index almost hit 4%. And then it came back down because of these structural impediments in the marketplace. So don't get me wrong. His, his theories have created a lot of the structural impediments <laughs> and the cockamamie ideas that we should keep uh, interest rates too low for too long in order to pull that last worker off the sidelines, the financial instability facilitated be damned. So th that's about the only place that he and I agree is that the inflation scare could get very ugly, but could still pass. The, I should give credit. I think it's still going. There's a website called long, a satirical website called long or short capital.com. And they came up with this fantastic conception known as the inflation X inflation index which is remarkably static because it takes inflation and then just subtracts inflation from inflation. <laughs> There's like a straight line going along the bottom of the screen. So yes, it's a my, brilliant, my brilliant few conceit. Was I, saw this, uh, I, I saw an inflation <laughs> metrics that pulled out all the service sectors that had been negatively impacted by the pandemic. I said, well, that's, that's great. <laughs> now, if you have inflation that's X, X living expenses, housing, energy, food, fuel, that, that would, that, uh, healthcare, education, that, that would that would nudge it down a tad. A tad. A remarkable, isn't it? Brilliant, Danielle. I think we've we've taken up a lot of your time, and we're extremely grateful for it. Um, before you go, could you tell us where we can find Quill Intelligence, and tell us where you are on social media so people can find you? Uh, uh, yes, please. Uh, please come to quillintelligence.com. Uh, we'd love to, uh, I'm, I'm happy to go offline with you guys and, and set up a, 
a discount code just for just for your show if they want to try the Daily Feather. They're more than welcome. Um, and follow me on Twitter at Demartino Booth. And I cannot tell you how many wonderful and free interviews are out there as well on my YouTube channel, Danielle Demartino Booth. Just look at my YouTube channel and subscribe. Uh, right now, I've got three brand new interviews uh, that are that are up and running that are very informative. Absolutely fantastic. And just one last question, if I may. Um, you wrote the book Fed Up. Have you got any other books in mind? Or I'm guessing you're just too busy at the moment. But any any other books yep. in the pipeline? I'm I am still too busy. Uh, I did mention the Daily Feather, which is our kind of our, our our daily. We also have a weekly and a full institutional lineup as well, all the way down to in, in investing ideas and what have you. And it is it is crazy keeping up with this research company right now. You could try a uh, Paul Krugman, my part in his downfall. <laughs> Fantastic! Um, but, it, uh, I, I have to say, you're very focused on Mr. Krugman. That, that, that I can't. I can't cool. think why. I can't think why that is at all. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. My hat's off. Brilliant stuff, Danielle. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Coming back on the show, I should say, and um, we hope to have you back on again very soon. I appreciate that. And um, send send somebody an email address, and I'll send you. Uh, I'll. I'll, I'll, I'll create a discount code and I'll send you that that full Bitcoin feathered so that you can put that up there as well. That would be absolutely brilliant. Really we can share, we can, we'll share it with our listeners and um, yeah, and, and they'll be able to use that. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, all the best. And, and, and uh, yeah, as I say, I hope to have you back on soon. Uh, we, we shouldn't wait this. No more. But can we not have a pandemic in between? Yeah, Next. absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Very good. All right. Take care. And you too. And you too, Daniel. Thanks again. Bye. And thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.